brings me to a point of such gratitude. Thank you, Pastor George, uh, for allowing me to be here. And thank you, church, for being one of the best missions partners that the International Mission Board has among more than 40,000 churches that we count as partners. Uh, I want to say thank you on behalf of our 3,000 500 plus IMB missionaries, your IMB missionaries. Thank you on behalf of their 2,880 kids who are part of those missionary families. Thank you for the way you pray for them. Thank you for the way you love them. Thank you for the way you go alongside of them in mission trips that, that uh, many of you take from Shades to be a part of the IMB work around the world. Thank you for sending out more and more all the time. And we look forward to seeing even more sent out. Thank you for your generosity. Uh, your Make Jesus Known offering, along with your ongoing giving through the Cooperative Program, literally makes you the most generous church in the state of Alabama in getting the gospel not only to Alabama, but to the nations. Uh, in fact, out of those more than 40,000 churches of the Southern Baptist Convention, you got to be like top five out of the whole 40,000 plus churches. What does that mean? Well, that means that you're not only caring for orphans and planting churches across Alabama through your work as Alabama Baptists, but you're taking the gospel across North America and planting churches through your partnership with the North American Mission Board. And through the IMB, you're making an impact literally around the world. This past year, more than half a million people heard the gospel overseas through your IMB missionaries and their Baptist partners on the ground. More than 176,000 of those who heard the gospel profess faith in Jesus. 107,000 followed through with baptism. And I know there's been a huge part of the legacy of this church to be a reproducing church and even the emphasis uh, that uh, uh, your pastor brings, having been a church planter himself, he and his wife and their family. Overseas this past year, more than 22,000 new churches were started through your IMB missionaries and their Baptist partners on the ground. So again, just such gratitude I have for you today. And I was so excited to be here with you to be able to share that and really to bring an emphasis on the importance of what we do together. Uh, you've been challenging one another, and we've been challenging uh, each other even today in this Global Impact Catalyst about what it means to leverage our lives, leverage who we are and what we do to address the world's greatest problem, to live sent with the gospel. And really bring focus to that again today. I want to turn your attention to a passive scripture in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 9 through 18 as you're finding uh, those pages in your Bible or clicking your device on uh, to your Bible app. Uh, let me just give a little uh, refresher on the context. Paul deals with a lot of very important issues in the book of Romans. Ultimately, uh, Paul is really honed in on the gospel, what the gospel means, uh, what it means to live the gospel, share the gospel. But in light of the gospel sort of being the this of the book of Romans, one of the things that Paul has to address is what the gospel means for his people. Now, Paul was an Israelite. Paul was a Jew. He was a part of the covenant people that we read about through the pages of the Old Testament. 
And here's the dilemma for Paul in light of the gospel, in light of Jesus coming and dying for the sins of the world, being raised and ascending to the Father and being the pathway through which uh, we are saved. Paul recognizes that many of his own people, the Israelites, the Jews, in fact, most of them have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior. And the dilemma for Paul is a personal concern for his own people, but also Paul feels an obligation to explain what does the gospel mean for the people of Israel who have rejected the gospel in light of all God has promised to and about his covenant people, the people of Israel? And so the question in its essence is, are God's promises still true? Will God's promises to Israel still be kept knowing that now we know the gospel and Jesus has come and died for us, yet so many of the Jews have rejected Jesus? What is the place of the Jew, the Israelite before God? And, and, and really Paul is picking that up many places in Romans, other writings as well, but particularly here in chapter 3 and in verse 9 he asks this question, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Paul says no. Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Verse 10, as is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or of snakes, of serpents, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. And if those words were not condemning enough, Paul then makes this statement in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If you follow Paul's argument, not just in these verses, but throughout the book of Romans and in other places, what you will find is that Paul indeed affirms God's promises to Israel will be kept because God has never broken a promise to anyone. What God has said will come true, will come true. God is not a liar. And everything that God has pledged to do, God will do. However, Paul also makes it clear, and unquestionably so in these verses that we've read, that God's covenant with the Israelites does not exempt anyone, Jew or the rest of us who aren't Jews, from responsibility for their own sin. And as Paul does this, as he makes his argument and repeats it over and over again, that it doesn't matter if you're, you're, you don't have any advantage if you're Israelite or a Jew, we're all in the same boat together. What Paul does is pinpoint for us the greatest problem in the world. What is the world's greatest problem? You know, it doesn't take about five minutes for me. Uh, scrolling through the news feed on uh, my phone or, or, or watching a news station to become almost clinically depressed from all the problems in our world. 
One year ago tomorrow, one year ago tomorrow, I was standing at the border of Ukraine in Poland. The war, the invasion of Ukraine had begun about four days earlier. And I was there as we were trying to organize partnerships through Send Relief and our missionaries on the ground, how to help the people who were victims of this war. And we stood there for hours and watched busload after busload, mostly, almost exclusively, of women and children coming through the border checkpoint, fleeing the bombs and the bullets in Ukraine, and coming into Poland. Over the course of the year that has passed, more than 8 million Ukrainians have fled their country as refugees in this war. There's another 6 million what we call internally displaced. They've had to move from their homes or communities or cities to other places in the country just for safety. 14 million displaced because of this war. We've seen even this week the saber rattling literally of the world's nuclear powers related to the ongoing war in Ukraine. I mean, this is a problem not just for Ukraine and, Ukraine and Eastern Europe. This is a global problem, the magnitude of which really is hard to measure. But is it the world's greatest problem? Two billion people in our world today will struggle to have one meal to eat. Two billion people are numbered among the, the, the food insecure. 345 million are literally, we are told, on the verge of starvation. By the way, that number has grown by 25% over the last year. You know why? Because of the war in Ukraine. Ukraine is a breadbasket country, but not just for Europe, particularly for sub-Saharan Africa, where hunger is an ongoing problem in so many places and, and, and has been exacerbated by the lack of goods and food coming out of Ukraine. Now, those numbers are mind-boggling, aren't they? Two billion people, food insecure, 345 million people on the verge of starving to death. Did you know that slavery is a greater problem in our world than ever before in human history? There are more than 50 million people who are what we call modern-day slaves. They are forced laborers around the world, significantly higher than it's ever been. Those problems can be overwhelming. But is modern-day slavery, is the refugee crisis around the world now crossing 100 million, is, is the war in Ukraine, is, is global, are these the world's greatest problems? I contend no. In fact, I suggest to you today that the world's greatest problem can be communicated in a single word. And that word is lostness. Lostness, spiritual lostness. Now, why, when, in light of all the world's problems, would I say today that the greatest problem in the world is lostness, being spiritually lost? I say that for two reasons, primarily. There's a long list of them, but two primary. One is that this is the only eternal problem. It's also a universal problem. Do you know that every other problem in your life ends the moment you die? The moment you die, uh, you won't have any concern or care whatsoever about your team being one of the 64 that made it in the tournament. 
I mean, you won't even flip on the television to watch the games. The moment you die, whether or not your student loans will be forgiven matters not. You don't care anymore. <laughs> the moment you die, that lower back pain, <laughs> it's gone. The moment you die, the addiction that's haunted you, you're free. In fact, every single problem you could name in your life ends the moment you die. Except one. Because you see, if you're lost, if you're separated from God because of your sin, if you've not put your trust in Jesus, repented of your sin, acknowledged him as Lord and been saved and been forgiven, have your broken relationship with God restored through Christ and through his gospel, if that hasn't happened, your greatest problem, the fact that you're separated from God because of your sin, the magnitude of that problem only hits home the moment you die. Because from that moment throughout eternity, you will be separated from God with no chance of restoration. The Bible says God is love. What would it feel like to be separated from love and the source of love for all eternity? That's what we call the hatred of hell. The Bible says the Spirit of God is our comforter. What would it feel like? What would it be like to be separated from comfort and any sense of comfort in your life for all eternity? That's, that's the agony and the suffering that the Bible describes as hell. The Scriptures say that Christ is your joy. To be separated from joy and the source of joy is the grieving and the sorrow of hell. The Bible says Jesus is your life. To be separated from life and the source of life. That's why hell is called the place of eternal death. There's no greater problem because that's an eternal problem. No other problems like that. But lostness is also the greatest problem in the world because it's a universal problem. Hunger affects some in the world. Slavery affects some in the world. War affects some in the world. Lostness affects everyone. In, the world. in fact, that's the point that Paul is driving home. He's dealing with the question of the Jews and the Israelites, but, but Paul says ultimately that question, the answer to that question is found both in the faithfulness of God to keep his promises, but also in understanding individual responsibility, not just a covenant people, but what does it mean individually to have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? And Paul, I mean, hammers on this fact that we're all in the same boat together. We all have this same problem. In fact, no less than nine times in the verses that we've read this morning, Paul makes the point. Let's, let's look at them again. And let me highlight them for you. What then, Paul asks in verse 9, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Nine times he repeats his argument in case anyone's wondering, well, do you really mean it? <laughs> yes, I really mean it, Paul says. It's a universal problem. It applies to all of us. And just in case someone's uh, tracking with Paul in his argument, but still thinking, well, maybe that's true of everyone else, but not me. Paul's going to use an illustration here to drive the point home. Paul is going to, as James did in John, James chapter 3, 
Use the illustration of our words, our mouths, our tongue. If you were talking to us today, Paul might say something like this. Oh, you think this is everyone else's problem and not yours, this problem of sin that you've done wrong. Why don't you just record yourself speaking for a little while? Play it back, and your own words will betray you. You will know then by the very words that you speak. In fact, uh, uh, Paul, as he makes his point, says it in very strong terms. Verse 13, their, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp or serpents is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And then there's social media. <laughs> Read an interesting article uh, a few months ago. It was in the Atlantic. It was the title of the article that really caught my attention. Uh, the article was entitled, Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. With an article like that, I thought, I need to read. See what this fellow has to say. Well, the fellow is a guy named Jonathan Haidt. It's interesting what he did in, the argument, in his argument and article as I began to read it. Uh, he, in trying to make his point about where we are in American life today and how social media has helped get us here, or at least reveals where we are, he pointed to a Bible passage. A Bible passage in the Old Testament, the record of what we know as the Tower of Babel. Do you, 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 you remember that story where the people came together wanting to make a name for themselves and decided that the way they would do that is through a building project. They determined to build a tower that would reach to the heavens that would reach to God. But it was this effort that brought them together that ultimately drove them apart. God even confusing their language, their ability to communicate with one another. Well, the author makes the point using that illustration, that's social media. It was supposed to bring us together I mean, we call them Facebook friends, right? <laughs> but Facebook can be a terribly unfriendly place, can it not? And what was supposed to bring us together into community and connect us with one another has ultimately resulted in driving us apart, isolating us from one another, even at times from our own family members. But it was interesting, as I finished the article, I felt something was missing. He didn't get really to the, to the root of the problem. Because what he failed to point out is the problem isn't social media. The problem isn't the platform you use, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or what have you. The problem is not uh, the, uh, the, the size of the screen, whether you're looking at your phone or, or, or the desktop. It's not the keyboard. The problem is here. The problem is the sinfulness, the depravity of the human heart. The words we type or the words we speak, as Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 3, simply reveal the condition of our heart, the sinfulness of our heart. Jesus made that point. Do you remember that? Matthew chapter 12. He's working over the Pharisees yet again. And here's what he says. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 34, you brood of vipers, 
you bunch of snakes. How can you speak good when you're evil? Listen to this. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your words reveal the condition of your heart. It's interesting, Paul uses that same imagery. Jesus calls the Pharisees a bunch of snakes, a brood of vipers. Paul in Romans 3 verse 13, as we've already read, says the venom of asp or of snakes, of serpents, is under our lips. Anyone have a good snake story? Oh, I've got plenty of them. <laughs> but, but my favorite one is from my teenage years. It was between my seventh and eighth grade year. I, I, I grew up in the mountains along the Tennessee-Kentucky line over in the eastern part of Tennessee, eastern part of Kentucky. But I found out about a summer camp experience that took place in West Tennessee, all the way to the other end of the state. Uh, it was a conservation camp, and I, the more I learned about it, the more I wanted to go. Because I'd heard that at conservation camp, you get to dissect a beaver. Mind of a teenage boy, right? What I did not realize, though, is that the beaver would be frozen and have to be thawed out in a bathtub in my cabin. Uh, as it turns out, that's the way it turned out, and the bathtub was a little oily after that. But nevertheless, we dissected that beaver, and it was so much fun. I also found out that conservation camp, you get to have rattlesnake for supper one night. I'd never eaten rattlesnake, so I thought, yeah, I need to go to conservation camp. But there were two things that made conservation camp like legendary. One was the snake roundup, and the other was the snake bite club. And so I was down for it all, signed up, took the 10-hour bus ride, school bus ride, from my hometown over in the mountains all the way across Tennessee to where camp was in Milan, Tennessee, just outside of Memphis. And sure enough, camp was all it promised to be. We dissected that beaver. Uh, we had rattlesnake for supper. And then there was the night that came when everyone who had traveled on the school buses to get to conservation camp got back on the school buses. They drove us to a swampy area just outside of Memphis and dumped us out to catch snakes all night. Now, can you imagine how that would go today? <laughs> I mean, load a school bus full of kids, dump them off in a swamp and tell them to catch snakes. You wouldn't as much as get them on the bus before someone would file a lawsuit. I mean, there'd be a legal injunction. But I'm telling you, in 1983, you could literally bus kids to the swamp and set them out to catch snakes and get away with it. And that's exactly what we did. But the next day, it got even better. Because the next day, the non-venomous, non-poisonous snakes that we'd caught the night before were put into a pillowcase. And one of the camp counselors, camp counselors carried that pillowcase all throughout the camp and gave any camper the opportunity who chose to to voluntarily join the snake bite club. Uh, now, here's the way it worked. You just put your hand in the pillowcase, you're an inductee. <laughs> but the problem is that cabin I was staying in where we had thawed out the beaver in the bathtub was all the way down at the end of the row of cabins. And by the time the counselor got down there and I heard the commotion outside, me and a few friends went out to sign up for the club, I stuck my hand in that pillowcase and nothing happened. I mean, I guess they were tired at that point in the, in the biting of the day. And so I, 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 nothing's happened. I looked at the counselor. I said, well, what do I do? 
He said, you're not bid? I said, no. He said, well, pull one of them out. And so I work my hand down in there, and I find a good fat one, and I pull it out. I'm standing there with that snake dangling from my hand, and it occurs to me that he was just about as disinterested in me as my teenage daughter is today. <laughs> Didn't even care that I was holding him by his tail. Nothing's happening. So I looked at the counselor again. I said, well, what do I do now? He said, well, slap him. <laughs> and so I did. And he slapped me back. It was a toothy slap right on the back of the hand that I'd slapped him with. And, and I was a member of the club. Now, let me make a, a, a disclaimer very quickly here. That was not church camp. <laughs> I grew up in the mountains. We had those churches in our town. I was not that kind of Baptist, okay? It's a conservation <laughs> camp. But let me make another disclaimer. That wasn't my initial membership moment in the Snake Bite Club. You see, I was born a member of that club. Lots of references to serpents and snakes in the Bible. We've seen some of them already today. The first one actually occurs in the earliest pages of the Bible. You remember that one, don't you? The serpent slithers his way into the garden to tempt the woman and the man, Eve and Adam, and they fall prey to his temptation. They do what God has explicitly told them not to do. We call that sin. And they are bitten. The consequences of their sin against God, God speaks very clearly. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, he offers his words of judgment, not just for the man and the woman, but for all of creation, we call it the fall, for the serpent himself. Let me read some of the verses that we find in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. The Lord God, the Bible says, said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. Dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, listen to this, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From that very moment, the moment of their sin and God's judgment, Adam and Eve knew what it was to be lost, to be spiritually lost. It is to have a broken relationship with our Creator because of what we have done. And yet the consequences weren't just for Adam and Eve alone. The consequences were for all creation and for their offspring. We don't have to fast forward very far. To find the reality of that, the Bible says since the fall, we are born dead in our trespasses and sins, but we also see the example of Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, in his jealousy and his hatred for his brother, murdering his brother. Lostness was the greatest problem 
and the generation of Cain and Abel. But lostness has been the greatest problem in every generation since the fall. Surely it was the greatest problem of the world in Noah's day, and God judged the earth because of the sin, the lostness of the people. He judged the earth through the flood. Lostness was the greatest problem in the world, and every generation after them, it was the greatest problem in the world in the days of the prophets. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they all pointed out this problem, called people to repent, warned them of the coming judgment of God because of their sinfulness, their consequences of being spiritually lost. And yet even as God spoke through the prophets to reinforce to the people the problem of their sin and the rebellion, the problem of their lostness, God also began to point to a solution. And the prophets began to speak of one who would come, a Messiah, a Savior, to bear the sins of the world, to solve the world's greatest problem. Every generation has continued to know this problem as their greatest problem. In fact, lostness is the greatest problem in our generation that's ever been in the history of the world. Why would I say that lostness is a greater problem today than it's ever been? You probably did not miss the headline in November. Global population crossed 8 billion people. More people on the planet than ever before in history. More lost people on the planet. Every year, our research team at the International Mission Board provides me with an updated statistic. They base this statistic upon three sets of data. One is the global population growth. The other set of data is the global death rate. Deaths reported country by country accumulatively over the course of a year. The third set of data is religious affiliation. What do people believe? What religion do they follow? Who do they trust in faith? Based upon those three sets of data, the statistic they provide me is the number of people around the world who on average die every day having given no indication that they have heard the gospel, or if they have heard the gospel, they believe the gospel, been born again and been saved. That number, brothers and sisters, is higher than it's ever been. Today, 157,690 people will die lost around the world. Another 157,690 would die tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that, having given no indication that they've heard the gospel or that if they've heard it, that they believed it, that they trusted Jesus, that they had their greatest problem solved. And thus they will enter eternity to forever be separated from God in hell. There is no greater problem in the world today. And yet, there is a solution. Jesus, in a conversation with Nicodemus, recorded in John chapter 3, tried to help Nicodemus understand the solution, the need to be born again. Nicodemus struggled. What? Be born again? What do you enter into my mother's womb again? How do you do that? What are you talking about? Jesus trying to help Nicodemus understand who he, Jesus is, and what he had come to do. 
tells Nicodemus a snake story. It's a story from the Old Testament, a record of a time when the Israelites were on their journey from the land of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. Along the way, that generation rebelled against God time and time again. It's true in every generation. And at one point, God, in judging them for their sin, sent poisonous vipers, poisonous snakes in the camps of the Israelites. You, you remember that, that record? And, and as the snakes began to beat the, bite the people, the people began to die. And seeing the consequences of their sin, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. The people began to repent, to cry out to God for forgiveness. And Moses, their leader, cried out on their behalf. Do you remember what God in his mercy did to provide a solution to this problem? God said, Moses, the people are being bitten, bitten by, the, by the vipers, the deadly snakes, and they're dying. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to fashion a serpent out of bronze. And I want you to put it on a pole. Is that bronze serpent on the pole is raised up. If anyone is bitten by one of the vipers in the camp, if they'll look at that bronze serpent, they won't die. They'll experience my mercy and they will live. Jesus references that, trying to help Nicodemus understand what he has come to do. In John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And indeed, he was lifted up. As Jesus died on the cross, not just for the sins of Nicodemus, but for your sin. And my sin and the sin of the world. And thus God solved the world's greatest problem as Jesus gave his life. And the Bible says anyone who believes in what Jesus did on that cross, who trusts in him, that he died for you, that he was raised from the dead. Anyone who is willing to turn uh, from their sin, being sorrowful for it and, and trusting Jesus and his death on the cross. We call that repentance and faith. And anyone ready to acknowledge him, Jesus, you are my Lord. The Bible says your greatest problem at that moment is solved. You're forgiven. And you'll be welcomed into his kingdom. If you were to ask me today, why does Shades Mountain Baptist Church exist? I would say to you, Shades Mountain Baptist Church exists to address the world's greatest problem. You know the solution. God has left you here to leverage your life, who you are and what you do, and to live sent with his good news. If you were to ask me why the International Mission Board exists, I would tell you the same thing. For 178 years, Southern Baptist churches have been working together to take the solution to the world's greatest problem to those who have never heard it. There are 7,000 people groups around the world. Of the 12,000 that have been numbered, they remain unreached with the gospel. What does it mean to be unreached with the gospel? It means that, that less than 2% of your people are believers in Christ. Now, if there's still 98% lost, we know that your people group is not found. You, 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 you're still unreached to some extent, but there's a witness there. But of those 7,000 people groups that remain unreached with the gospel, 3,000 remain unengaged. 
In the simplest of terms, to be unengaged with the gospel means if you lived among those people, you couldn't have come to church today to hear the gospel preached. There's no church among your people. It means you couldn't walk through your town, city, village, community day and find a missionary who's there to share the gospel with you because the missionaries haven't made it to you yet. And church, that's why we're still here. And we're to be reminded in this global impact catalyst that there's a world out there that still needs to hear the good news of the gospel. The IMB is still sending missionaries. We're sending students for a semester or summer, a gap year. We'd love to talk to you about that. We're sending uh, two-year fully funded uh, young people under the age of 30, married or single, no kids yet through our journeyman program. We're sending career missionaries today. We have a goal of growing by 500. We're sending retirees. It doesn't matter what your work has been in life. You're coming to the end of your career. You've already come to the end of that career. Uh, you've been a doctor or a nurse. We can use you. You've been a police officer or a school teacher. We can use you. You've been a farmer. We can use you. No matter what your skill set has been, IT professional, we can use you somewhere around the world to share the gospel. We'd love to talk to you today. Many years ago, was a couple of men showed up in the parking lot of a Baptist church. It was a weekday evening. They were there because uh, it was church visitation night. It's church somewhat like this and the fact that it was a Baptist church with a parking lot. <laughs> it was unlike this church in the sense that that church building and the parking lot would fit in this room. This is a small church in a little town in the mountains on the Tennessee-Kentucky line. The men did what they'd come to do. They left the church parking lot on foot, just walking through the town, knocking on doors, inviting people to church. At some point that evening, they climbed a steep hill, made their way up to a little rental property, a little rental house at 210 Province Street. Stepped up on the porch, knocked on the door. Young man in his mid-20s came to the door. I don't know if they knew about his circumstances. Like I say, it was a small town. You know how small towns go. They may have known all about his circumstances, but... But had they known what they would have known, he was about two years past a divorce. He had three kids, and he was raising them on his own. There's no way, even if they knew all that, no way they could have known that the four-year-old somewhere in that house would someday be the president of the International Mission Board. But they knew enough. They knew enough to know people not in church need to be in church. They knew enough to know broken families need the Lord. They knew enough to know that the greatest need in any person's life is a relationship with Jesus made possible through the gospel. And so when dad came to the door, they invited him to church. Well, he took them up on their offer and their invitation somehow managed to get three rowdy boys ready on his own Sunday and he, he took us to church. What we found there was the same thing I found when I drove on to the church campus with Bradley this morning. We found a church family that was welcoming to us, genuinely pleased we were there. We found a church that extended its arms open to us and loved us as a family, even a broken family. We found a church looking back on it that helped raise us as it became the pattern in our life to go on a regular basis and we found a church that shared the gospel with us. There's another knock on our door. A few years later, 
still living in that little rental house. Dad opened the door. Our pastor was standing there, Brother Allen. He'd come at Dad's invitation. My older brother had been asking questions about the gospel. What would it mean for him to give his life to Jesus? And Dad asked our pastor, you mind to come by and talk to my oldest boy? And so he did. My younger brother and I, we sat in the floor and we listened to Brother Allen share the gospel. Brother Allen got three for one that night. So we put our trust in Jesus. We're baptized together just a few weeks later in the baptistry of the little First Baptist Church of Jellicoe, Tennessee. Oh, I can't tell you how thankful I am for a couple of men out knocking on doors who understood the problem that we were facing as a family, the magnitude of it, that we, we were dealing with the world's greatest problem. I thankful I am for a pastor like Pastor George and your other pastors here whose greatest joy it was to come and share the gospel with us. I thankful I am for a church that knew why it was there. And how thankful I am to be at a church like that today. But what about you? What will it mean for you to leverage who you are and what you do to address the world's greatest problem? What will it mean for you to live sent with the gospel, sent to your family, sent to your school, sent to your workplace, sent to your community? Maybe God is calling you to the nations. Would you say today, here am I, send me? Live sent. Because you see, here's the thing. Indeed, the world has a greater problem today than it's ever had, but you and I know the solution. Let's go share it. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this church, for such a legacy of faithfulness and living out the very purpose for which you put this church here, to be on mission, Lord, near and far. Thank you for bringing Pastor George and his family here and others who lead in this wonderful congregation. Thank you for every member who has got involved and who's a part of the solution. Lord, I pray for those who haven't yet got involved and who today you would be challenging to leverage their lives. And I pray, Lord, especially for those who may have walked in the doors of this building today, still shouldering the world's greatest problem. Lord, might you move in their hearts, convict them of their sin, convince them of the truth of the gospel. Save them, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.